Good morning, ladies of North Campus Moms Group. This is Adrienne Siegel, and I had so looked forward to being with you this week uh, to present a message about the false gospel of feminism. I guess the coronavirus has caught us all by surprise, and I'm very sorry that I won't be able to be there and look into your faces and interact with you as we consider this subject, but know that I have been praying for you all as I prepared for this message, and I've been praying for you right up till this time of recording, that you're all well, and your families are protected, and that God would use this extraordinary time to strengthen your faith and give you opportunities to share the gospel with friends and neighbors and maybe other family members, and that he would be glorified in the midst of these things. When Pam asked me whether I would record my message, I have to admit my first thought was that that feels pretty strange. I've never done anything like that before. But um, I decided I would give it a shot, so if you will bear with me, I'm going to try to uh, share with you what I would have shared had I been able to be with you. I'm going to begin by saying that God chose to teach me about the perils of the false gospel of feminism through painful experience. Most of what I'll share this morning will be about that. But before I get into that, let me lay a little groundwork. First, let's agree on our definition of a false gospel. My, my definition has two parts. First, a false gospel challenges the foundation of our joy. By that I mean a false gospel encourages belief and placing, placing trust for happiness and well-being in something other than God and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So the false gospel challenges the foundation of our joy. Secondly, a false gospel challenges the Bible. In other words, it compromises the teaching of the Bible by causing people to question it and, and, and or interpret it in ways that distort the truth. I believe at a minimum the cause of feminism qualifies as a false gospel by these standards. As Christians, we need to be so careful in being caught up in the causes of the world. Many of the intentions behind these causes may be right and just, but secular causes, even when they address real earthly needs, such as poverty, inequality, and oppression, start from a strikingly different premise than we do as Christians. They start from the premise that if we work together hard enough, we can bring about the perfect world we're seeking. God is not in the equation, or if he is, it is a distorted view. Whenever the God of the Bible is not in the equation, it is a major red flag for a Christian. We can, and I do, support the goals of those who want women to be treated fairly and with respect, those who seek to lift the poor out of poverty, those who want to right injustices of all kinds. We can and should be active on all of these fronts, but we need to be sure our involvement is under the headship of our Lord, tested by the truth of the Bible, and fully and joyfully submissive to God's sovereign will and plan. With that in mind, False gospels are particularly insidious because they generally appeal, at least in some fashion, to human desires and needs that are real. For example, the prosperity gospel promises material blessing. And it's not always overtly appealing to greed. 
but usually by exploiting a real need. This is why the reason, excuse me, this is one reason the prosperity gospel appeals to the poorest of the poor and why the false gospel of prosperity is thriving in developing countries today. Similarly, feminism appeals to the need for the change of some of the real injustices in our society. I did and do believe women should have respect from others, be equal citizens in our country, have access to most jobs and equal pay for equal work, and other things that those in the movement have fought for. Back in the 60s when I was growing up, and in the 70s and 80s when I was most influenced by feminism, there was more discrimination on all of these fronts than there is today. This testifies to some good that has been done, at least in part, because of the feminist movement. <clears throat> but far more insidious and destructive, feminism from its earliest manifestations has been an in-your-face challenge to God's order and plan. The spirit of Eve is alive and well in our age. We need to examine our own hearts and make sure it is not alive and well in us. Fundamentally, Feminism encourages women to believe they understand what is best for themselves and can get it themselves. They don't need a man or men, and sometimes overtly and sometimes subliminally, they believe they don't need God. This is the lie Eve was coaxed to believe, and it still tantalizes not just women, but every human being today. Specifically, feminism demands women place their own I would argue perceived, needs and desires above the plan of God and above the needs of others. Feminist activism has sought to legitimize, encourage, even celebrate the destruction of God's plan for sex and marriage and the family. Feminism has evolved to seek to make men and women's roles indistinguishable or interchangeable. And here I would say be careful what you wish for. Because as we see now, in tragically delightful irony, feminists are in confusion and anger about what the feminist mo movement really is. In this gender-fluid world, just who are they championing? championing? Perhaps most horrifically, feminism has promoted the killing of the unborn to the point of the unbelievable horror that we see demanded and celebrated in our country today killing the very image bearers women were created to help multiply for the glory of God, and all to achieve their own satisfaction. For a pretty good synopsis of the roots of feminism in Europe and then in the U.S., I highly recommend Eve in Exile by Rebecca Merkel. Merkel is not an historical expert, and her style can be a little flippant at times. Feminists would argue she gives no real thought to serious problems and needs women face in a changing society. And I do think, in trying to stand back and give a bigger picture, she gives an interesting but somewhat simplistic analysis. Still, overall, I think she does a good job of exposing some of the real issues and motives at the root of the feminist movement. And God, or understanding what he intends for women, was not at the center of any of it. What Merkel does best, however, is give a great call to encourage women to re-examine the glorious role God has given us as women. 
She exposes what we're missing when we believe that what we need is to do all, all that men do and be treated like men. She has important and glorious things for women to do, or excuse me, God has important and glorious things for women to do, and it makes a big difference if we do or fail to do them. The book is pretty short. I read it in an afternoon, and it was a very enjoyable read. I wouldn't have called myself a feminist in the late 70s and early 80s. I agreed on some of the issues but I didn't relate to all the shouting and the bra burning and the anger that characterized the movement. But I was a child of the feminist movement, as you are. Its aroma wafted into every room of my thoughts and shaped so much of my personal goals and aspirations. I was like the frog in the pot of water that is slowly heated. It took a long time before I was even aware I was in danger. I want to highlight my experiences on three fronts as they relate to feminism. All, by the way, related to the insistence of what they call equality with men, but I would argue really means the interreplaceability of men. The first area is the sexual revolution, which affected me most when I was an unbeliever before I came to Christ. Second was women in the workplace. This dimension of fe feminism contributed more than I understood to my identity, even after I became a Christian. And third, women in the church. Because I came to Christ in a liberal church that had bought into the feminist movement, this dimension really became a source of confusion in my spiritual life. If I had to summarize the way I understood the underlying premise of the feminist movement at the time, it would be, Women have been repressed too long. It's time that women stood up for themselves and did what's best for themselves. In the context of society I grew up in and the messages that permeated that society, that sounded right to me, even though I couldn't really point to ways I, as a woman, had been repressed or, oppre or oppressed. I also understand now that the context included my natural bent towards sinful self-centeredness. Who doesn't want to stand up and do what they perceive to be right for themselves in any time and place? I can't say that I really expected the feminist movement to do all this for me, but those ideas helped me believe that the most important thing for me was to become an independent, successful, fulfilled woman. This meant I needed to take responsibility for my life and that it was up to me to make choices that would be best for me. My motives reflect perhaps the biggest lie perpetuated by feminism and society, and really Eve's motivating lie. It's all about me. So how did the sexual revolution affect me? To put things in context, we take most of the realities of feminism, feminism has brought about for granted today. But at the time I was born and growing up, feminism was ushering in massive change. In the 1950s, media was not allowed to show explicit sex. Swear words were banned from the media. You couldn't check into a motel room with a person of the opposite sex if you weren't married, unless you lied. Dorms didn't allow members of the opposite sex on living floors, only in public areas at certain hours. 
You couldn't lease an apartment together if you weren't married. You couldn't get a divorce unless there was proven adultery or abuse. You certainly couldn't get an, an abortion legally. And almost everyone still agreed that homosexual behavior was not normal. Please note, I'm not nostalgically hearkening back to that time. I don't think the whole society was idyllically focused more on God's plan. But things were changing fast. When the first oral birth control pill came on the market in 1960, I was four. My mom took them, and I later did too, before I was married. The freedom to have sex without getting pregnant was an earthquake of biblical proportions. A decade or so later, no-fault divorce destroyed the foundation of covenant marriage and really the whole idea of keeping your word. You could make vows and change your mind. No big deal. What mattered was how you felt. What was the best for you at the time? The stigma of being a bad girl, quote-unquote, if you had sex before marriage, was beginning to lift, not so much for the really loose girls, but for thoughtful, intelligent, independent women who were doing, quote-unquote, doing what's right for them. Young people increasingly lived together before marriage or instead of marriage. None of this sounds unusual today, but you must understand, prior to the mid-50s, the culture banned all of this. I grew up in a breakthrough time, and all of these previous rules and many others were being upended, and it is fair to say that the feminist movement was at the center of it all. By the time I got to high school in 1970, the reigning slogan of the day was, if it feels good, do it. I went to a mainline denomination church as a child, but my parents were not born again, and I know now the church was pretty liberal. That said, I learned many right things, but because my parents and those I knew in the church weren't born again, it felt more like school learning. Interesting, but not bedrock understanding. I wasn't sure what to believe about the Bible. I knew my mother didn't believe it was inerrant. This was also the Jesus freak era, and that had the unfortunate effect of making Jesus kind of embarrassing in enlightened circles. Anyway, the culture was literally turning on its head, and I didn't have a strong biblical foundation. I floated around at sea with the rest of the culture. Add to this, women were loudly demanding more respect and were demanding and being given more and more opportunities in the working world. I was, and for the most part am, all about these things. But this felt like frontier territory then. So when I left home to go to college, I really did want to study. I was a serious student, but I also wanted independence. I wanted adventure. I wanted to experiment. I wanted to taste and see the joys I'd been hearing about. I wanted to find myself. I also wanted boyfriends, and I wanted to have lots of fun. I wanted to see how to take the best from what I'd learned at home and in the culture and all that I would learn in college to quote-unquote live my best life, and I didn't even know I was being prophetic. There's not time to go into it all, and it probably wouldn't even be valuable, but suffice it to say, to some extent, I bought what the culture was saying about sex. To some degree at that time, and certainly as I reflect on that time, the big takeaway is pain and shame. There were a handful of instances over the years that created images in my brain that still haunt me occasionally today. 
but there is also pain because I entered those relationships with hope of a really meaningful, lasting connection. And in every case but one, sex seemed to cause the trajectory of the relationship to bypass meaningful connection, not improve it. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I can attest to the truth of that scripture. And the pain only grew worse as I began to understand how I had sinned against the Lord. I wish I had time today to share all of the things God has taught me about his purposes for sex, as I've looked to the Bible to help me untwist the lies I believed and understand God's purposes, I feel God has shown me some things so clearly and wonderfully. I wrote just a little about it in an article in Desiring God entitled, What I Wish I Had Known About Purity. Interestingly, I deliberately put the whole question of God on the shelf. I didn't throw it out. I just shelved it while I explored elsewhere. It was significant to me then, and continues to be significant to me today, that I never threw God out. In college, I actually explored other religions in a fairly cursory way, and I took a wonderful Bible as literature course from a delightful man I am now certain was a born-again Christian. He never said that. He just radiated it. Below it all, I always believed something was true. And one day, I wanted to know what that was. This underlying conviction is one of the things that contributes to my Calvinist understanding today. Deep inside, I knew there was a God. I knew that he had things he wanted me to know. I believed, pretty arrogantly, he would be patient with me. And in time, I came to know that through it all, God was drawing me to himself. Eventually, when Christ met me. He met me in a big way, about three years after I graduated from college. And then everything changed. I fell so hard in love with Christ that I knew I'd never understood what quote-unquote love meant before. Physical love, which had most often ended up leaving me feel used and in shame, felt very superficial compared to the deep love of Christ who wanted a relationship with me so much that he literally died to make it possible. But we'll come back to that. On to the working world. There's little doubt that for me, the working world was more satisfying than sex. I was the smart, creative, entrepreneurial woman making it in a man's world, almost from the day I stepped out of college. I had confidence in myself and I credit my parents, especially my dad, for helping me develop that. My parents valued and taught humility and honesty and a strong work ethic. They believed in me and encouraged me to do what I wanted to do. I cannot stress enough how important it was for me that my dad believed in me. He respected me. He really loved me, and I knew it. This gave me confidence, and eventually, I believed it helped me understand the love of a heavenly father. A dad's love and influence is inestimable. My confidence helped me to move more comfortably in workplaces that the feminists were fighting to get into. I didn't walk in with anger or self-righteousness 
or a sense of entitlement. I wanted to learn what needed to be done and do it really, really well. I was respectful. I believed the, the evidence would indicate I was likable. I was hardworking. I was responsible. And it worked. I was an account executive and a copywriter for a business-to-business -business advertising agency. And my clients, most of whom were men, were happy, and some of my work was winning awards. By age 25, three of my associates and I pooled our resources and bought the company. I was a vice president of a growing advertising firm at age 25. Interestingly, the process of my conversion began at about the same time. One of my partners, arguably the most gifted, entered, the business, in, entered into business ownership on the heels of the crushing defeat of a divorce. His name is Rick Siegel, and the story of his conversion is a compelling one. It's his to tell, but let's just say God worked an incredible miracle in Rick's life right at the time he and I and two others decided to buy the business. I want to be clear that Rick and I did not even have a hint of romantic involvement at the time. We were co-workers and good friends, in part because we all worked so much we didn't have time for much else. And now we were pooling our resources to make a go of the agency on our own. But we were not romantically involved. I had nothing to do with his divorce. But when God met Rick, something big changed. It was impossible to miss. He was going to church. He had been broken by all in his personal life, but he was being restored in a new way. At some point, he gave me a cassette tape of a service from the church, and late one evening when I was alone, still at work, I plugged it in. And before long, tears were streaming down my face. I began then to wonder if I should find that shelf I'd place God on and see if there were things worth understanding. I was confused about the spiritual possibilities, but started to pray for God to show me what was really true. Rick invited me to church, and I began going. This was in the fall of 1981, and by Christmas, Rick gave each of his partners, including me, a Bible. By that time, I thought it was a great idea. I'm not sure what the others thought. Rick had developed a deep friendship with the pastor, and soon I did too. We both got real involved in the life of the church, including helping them with brochures for their financial campaigns and a building plan and other marketing needs. But the real work in my heart was happening in worship and in the friendship with this pastor. He was very genuine and open and kind and patient and fatherly. I remember with embarrassment telling him I could believe the part about Jesus dying for sins on the cross, but did he really believe Jesus was resurrected? This man had devoted his adult life to being a preacher and a pastor, and I was essentially asking him if he was faking it. He just chuckled and said, Oh yes, Adrian, I really do. Somewhere in those months he gave me C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity, and that was a breakthrough book for me. By Easter of 1982, the Lord had decided it was time. And when the pastor shouted, He is risen, I answered with the congregation, He is risen indeed. And I believed it down to the depths of my soul. It was true. 
It was all true. Not only had Christ loved me enough to die for me in my filth and shame, he remained alive to continue to love me and live in and with me. I was overwhelmed with the love of Christ in this. I fell head over heels in love with Christ and absolutely could not read enough or pray enough or even talk to others enough about the joy I was feeling. I didn't know much of the Bible, but I felt I had met the risen Lord and no relationship I'd ever had held a candle to this. I don't have time to go into it here, but one of the first things God confronted me on was abortion. One word, actually one question from the Lord while I was seeking him in prayer about this issue, and my position completely reversed. I literally felt the horror of it. God has a way of doing things like that. And it did leave me wondering what other things I thought I was sure about that I was getting very wrong. Five months later, Jesus began to give Rick and me new eyes for each other. To take nothing away from my amazing husband, I came at this kicking and screaming. No, he was a business associate. Professionals simply did not have relationships with colleagues or clients. He was divorced. He had a child from his first marriage. His divorce had wiped him out financially. Not that any of us had that much, but he was living in an empty apartment with a mattress on the floor in the bedroom and a rented sofa and chair in the living room. He didn't even have a telephone, and that was well before cell phones. If you needed him in off hours, you had to drive over to his apartment. Even our dear pastor friend, and the utmost love for both of us, encouraged me to keep our relationship on a safer level. But over the next couple of months, the louder I argued with God, and I prayed about this more than anything I'd ever prayed about before, the more he made it clear this is what he had for me, for us. I can honestly say that my relationship began more in obedience to God than a head-over-heels love. I loved Rick as a friend and a colleague, but had never thought about romance with him or marriage. I was terrified. But God seemed to be saying over and over, this is what I have for you. Trust me. And when I submitted to God, romantic love did indeed follow. And we were married the following July. I tell you these things primarily because the stage was set for the next place God would confront me. He had begun to confront me about the feminist-inspired lies I'd believed about sex. Now he was going to confront me with his ideas of what it means to be a wife and soon a mother. How did these roles fit with what seemed to me to be the central part of my identity, my role as a businesswoman? Delightfully, the marriage part seemed to work just fine from the start. The concerns I'd had about our working together never materialized. We worked together fine. We had different clients and different responsibilities in the company, and we continued to do just what we'd been doing. We did have a wonderful son by Rick's previous marriage. He was three and a half by the time we married. But we simply unfolded visits with him into our schedule. I was totally smitten from the start. 
and little Cameron seemed to enjoy me too. When things really got, excuse me, when things really started to get difficult for me was when we began to have children. It was really relatively easy with our first child. I'd always planned to go back to work and I, and I did. We finally settled on part time. There was a good daycare right by our building. Marshall was a super compliant and happy little guy, so it all worked pretty well. But I did have an almost continual nagging feeling that I wasn't doing any of it very well. When I was at work, I was guilty I wasn't at home. And when I was at home, I felt like there were things I should be doing for the job. I felt like I was doing a mediocre job both places. I've talked to a lot of working women over the years, and this is a really common emotional experience. Interestingly, I haven't talked to many men that experience this feeling of being deeply torn between being at home and at work. I've known quite a few men who've become a more primary caregiver because their wives have a higher paying, more responsible job. Some of them seem to be okay with this, others troubled by it. But I don't hear them expressing being torn, feeling like they should be both places in the same way women seem to wrestle with guilt about these things. I have some ideas about this. Maybe I'll touch on them later. I lost my second child at 12 weeks into the pregnancy, and while upset, I accepted it as God's will. Soon after, I was pregnant again, and we just planned to handle this new addition the same way we had the first. I'd returned to work part-time. But when we tried that plan, I cried every day I dropped them at daycare. I couldn't do it. I got up the courage to tell Rick that I didn't want someone else raising our boys. I needed to stay home. I was a little concerned about what he might think. Well, he was so relieved. He'd been thinking the same thing for some time, but didn't want to pressure me. Wow, this was all going to get real. I was leaving my business career. Yikes, but relief. Probably not coincidentally, this all coincided with a spurt of spiritual growth on both of our parts. One manifestation was that we had both, separately, come to the conclusion we needed to be tithing to the church. We gave sacrificially already, but we felt we needed to start at 10%. So the same time we cut our income in half, we started tithing the church. And you know what happened. In God's economy, it all worked out just fine. Except for my internal crisis. I've written a, a bit about this in an article a couple of years ago for Desiring God called, Is It Better for Moms to Stay Home? The long and the short of it is that I had not fully understood just how much of my identity was in my working persona. I thought of myself as the professional woman society had held in such esteem. But here I was at home, economizing, changing diapers, cleaning a small, outdated home, cooking, and basically doing over and over again things that would never be done. In other words, I was right where most of you are. I loved my boys and being there for them at every stage of development, but I missed finishing things. I missed affirmation and admiration. I missed awards and travel 
and witty banter. <laughs> I don't think I would have articulated it this way, but I had come to believe that women of worth did quote-unquote important things, like those I was doing in the working world, things society affirmed were important, things women had been fighting for years to do, things the world applauded. When I went home, I never actually believed I'd sold out, and actually I never seriously wanted to go back, but I was confused. What I know now that I didn't understand then is that I was following the world's counsel, feminist counsel, and placing my identity in my job and not in Jesus. I loved Jesus, and I knew he loved me and had forgiven me. I knew he had led me to this marriage, which was good, and to be the mama of these boys, which was good. But on a fundamental level, I still didn't understand that when I was born again, everything changed completely. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That had happened to me, but I was only beginning to understand what that meant. My true identity had shifted from being a working woman, or even from being a wife and mother, to being united with the Creator God in Christ. I had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into His glorious light. I was truly a citizen of a new world with entirely different priorities. I'd not come to understand that only when I really believed my life was defined by who I was in Christ would I begin to understand my worth and value in every role he assigned me. Ladies, when God designs a role for us, he has our very best in mind. The world doesn't always value the role that God assigns, but we are not of the world. God has larger purposes than anything the world imagines. The world compares and is dissatisfied. God, through Christ, shows us a much better way. He designed each of us packed full of unique gifts, not to be compared with others, but to be displayed for his glory in every role he plans for us. Are we comparing and dissatisfied or joyfully displaying our satisfaction in Christ for his glory? As we join men in the task of filling the earth with image bearers and subduing creation, bringing God's order, God has given women a glorious task of building the home. Yes, this has to do with keeping it clean and feeding our families and doing laundry, but below all of this is the opportunity to set the tone for all who live and come there. This means we have to think about the way we do everything. Rather than focus daily on the drudgery and repetitiveness of our tasks, we need to be thinking about being so filled with the Spirit and His fruit that we bring the aroma of Christ, the deep satisfaction of belonging to and living to glorify Christ, to everything we do. Even if we work outside the home, it's an opportunity to bring the aroma of Christ, and it should always serve our calling in the home. 
Our motivation should never be a self-centered concern with our personal need for fulfillment. What could possibly be more fulfilling than using our gifts to joyfully show our husbands and children, if we have them, or our friends and coworkers, if we don't, what a wonderful thing it is to be in eternal fellowship with Christ. If we think there is something better, we need to really check our hearts. Secular society and most of the jobs in it will pass away. If I were to pull out the award-winning, quote-unquote, work I did in the 80s, I can assure you we would all think that by today's standards that had passed away. Our home is one of the best places to nurture eternal possibilities and the setting where God wants us to glorify him, to help our husbands to be inspired to glorify him, and to teach our children the wonders of this God who is everything to us. Our calling and our roles are not about fulfilling ourselves on earth, but living to point others to Christ. God places a little piece of eternity under our management, and this is a far more glorious calling than any job the world has to offer. All of my work in advertising has already passed away. The work of Christ in my, in my life and my home will never pass away. I was a slow learner, but I was learning. I'm sad to say my church wasn't much help. In those years, almost everything I learned was from prayer. And since I'd come home, radio ministry. Praise the Lord for Elizabeth Elliot. I was reading the Bible, but I did not know much about it. And my precious pastor, though he helped me find Jesus, and I am forever grateful, did not teach the Bible well. Which brings me to the final area feminism led me astray in the church. God, in all of his wisdom, caused me to be born again into a church that is part of a liberal mainline denomination. Honestly, knowing what I know today, I look back and I think, why on earth? But that's the way he did it. At first, it was fine. These people are wonderful people who loved me and welcomed me, and I continue to love them today but the majority experienced their faith very differently than I was coming to understand it. I was so overwhelmed with joy in Christ, and I assumed I had been slow to get what everyone else in the pews around me already knew. It took me about three years to begin to see that many, if not most, of these kind people sitting in the pews had not had the born-again experience I'd had. There were people who came because their families had always attended this church. There were people who believed in the social causes the denomination championed. There were people who liked the majesty of the music. We had wonderful music. There were a lot of people, like the ones that surrounded me in the mainline church I'd grown up in. Nice, moral people who believed themselves saved, but did not appear to have a personal relationship with Jesus and would have cringed at the term born again. And there were lots of women in leadership. In fact, it is fair to say most of the leaders were women. The bishop of our region was a woman. The regional and superintendent was a woman. Many of the years we were there, the lay leader of our church was a woman. Chairs of committees were women. 
Scripture readers were often women. At the time, we didn't have one, but there were already lots of women pastors throughout the denomination. Of course, this didn't really bother me. From my perspective, women were every bit as capable as men. Why shouldn't they be in leadership? And of course, my skills and leadership abilities made me an attractive candidate for all kinds of leadership roles in the church. And frankly, I loved it. I could recover in the church some of the fulfillment I'd lost when I left the workplace. So I rose in the ranks. Rick served in many roles as well, and it seemed like our pastor came to think of us as kind of interchangeable. If one of us couldn't do something, maybe the other one could. At first, I don't think Rick saw a problem with it. But a big change was underway. Maybe six months after we were married, the pastor started to teach a real Bible study. Rick and I dived in, so excited. But almost immediately, the pastor fell ill, and he asked Rick to take over teaching that class until he could return. Long story short, the pastor never returned. Rick, who knew almost nothing about the Bible, was suddenly teaching. And natural teacher that he is, he began reading commentaries and studying the text more deeply and leading really penetrating discussions. No doubt he and our class didn't get all the theology right, but God's Word began to do what only God's Word can. It began to uncover sin and error and expose the light of the gospel in amazing new ways. We began to believe in the total sovereignty of God as we studied Romans because it couldn't be plainer than we find it there. We didn't understand we were becoming quote-unquote reformed until many years later, But that was happening in a church that was definitely not Reformed, but only because we were studying the Bible. There are several stories I could relate about how God used me as a reluctant, fairly Bible illiterate woman to stand up to the hierarchy of the denomination, but I don't have time today. The biggest turning point for me uh, was when, to seriously question the role of women in the church, came when I was voted to be lay leader of our congregation. Our pastor really wanted Rick, but the role was elected by a committee, and one of the members of the committee had an issue with Rick. So when Rick wouldn't work, the pastor asked if I would be acceptable, and I was. It's difficult to articulate the dark cloud that descended over our marriage. On the surface, Rick agreed that if the pastor really wanted one of us in the role, and it couldn't be Rick, I should probably do it. But it never felt right to him or to me. If I understood what I know now, I never would have accepted. It not only felt uncomfortable to have a woman, his wife no less, be a leader over him in the church, it also felt like it changed his spiritual leadership at home. I still looked to him as the leader in the home, but he felt a changed dynamic. All of this felt completely different than the dynamics in the working world. There is no question the conflict between roles in the working world and the different dynamic in the home and the church created confusion in my mind about what my role should be. I think there is a difference, but I didn't understand it and my whole perspective so strongly influenced by feminism, still affirmed that women had just as much ability and right to do this role. Why shouldn't a woman do it? 
My church had had several women lay leaders before me, and they affirmed me in this role. I'd had the ability and the time. Why wouldn't I serve if called? Still, because of Rick's and my unexplainable discomfort, had anyone else been acceptable to the pastor, I would have declined. One of the reasons the pastor wanted Rick or me in the role is that he was planning to retire in the next couple of years, and he wanted our leadership in the transition. I did it out of loyalty to the pastor. I did it because Rick's and my discomfort didn't make sense to me. And clearly, I did it because I did not know what the Bible had to say about women in leadership at the church. Our dear pastor was part of a denomination that that dismissed that. So, of course, he never talked about it. Notice, I did not take on this role because I felt like it was a calling from God to do it. I now know Rick and I were uncomfortable because God is pretty clear in the Bible that he did not intend for women to be the primary leaders in the church. He gave the heavy burden of that responsibility primarily to men. And disobedience to God on any level disrupts peace and is like a stone dropped in a pool with a ripple effect on lots of other areas. We muddled through several years to help get the church through the transition to the next pastor. But we were pretty miserable, and we increasingly knew we had to go somewhere where the Bible was taught well. When we finally did leave the church, it was initially a quote-unquote sabbatical to investigate some other churches. The third week visiting other churches, we landed in a small evangelical free church where the pastor, a Trinity grad, taught line by line verse by verse, through books of the Bible. We felt like we were desert ground that had finally been watered. It was amazing. We never went back to the liberal church. The new church was governed pretty much like Bethlehem, by the congregation but led by a board of elders, all men. I cannot tell you the refreshment I felt immediately to be in a church led by men that majored in teaching the Bible. It had taken 18 years, but we were finally beginning to learn and appreciate God's plan for the organization and priorities of his church. It felt and feels so right. I'm not suggesting that just because God has assigned men more responsibility for leadership in the home and the church, that they always get it all right or that we have no contribution, or that we have no role in holding the men accountable. We absolutely have a role in all of these things and more. But God created men and women to work together, each taking the invaluable role he assigns with humility. Men and women should bring a spirit that understands he or she is not worthy or, frankly, able to do the things God is calling them to do. And that humility should be combined with awe at the privilege that God has entrusted this important eternal work to us at all. The Bible tells us that God created women to be a helper, and we bristle at this. But we only bristle because we are so dominated by the world's view that values a twisted perception of power. In the world, quote-unquote, helpers are lesser people. 
but helper is an exalted position in God's kingdom. God has asked us to help him in the glorious work of raising up a world full of image bearers to dwell with him in his glory throughout all eternity. God has created men and women equally to be the means by which he fills the earth with his glory. With his glory. In his infinite wisdom, God has given men more responsibility for this, and he holds them to greater accountability. I, for one, have come to be so grateful that I am called to be the helper and that the buck doesn't stop with me. Ladies, Eve took the leadership in the first sin, but God held Adam responsible. Romans 5.12 says sin entered the world through one man. Have you ever noticed that there was nothing in God's word about men ruling women until the fall? God brought Eve into the world to help Adam with a massive responsibility, but there was absolutely no sense of a power struggle until God says the consequence of Eve's act was that her desire shall be contrary to her husband, but that he shall rule over her. And leaders don't just have power, they have responsibility. Eve conceived pain, or excuse me, Eve received pain in childbirth, hard, but not a daily experience. And she received a battle in her heart that would challenge her pride. That was a bit tougher. But Adam added to his responsibility not only dominion over the world that was to create image bearers to glorify God, but now he also had to sweat for every single bite of food and provision for those in his growing family. His work had been hard and he needed help before, but all of their food and shelter was provided. Now, well, there truly is no rest for the wicked. It's a fearful thing to be held accountable by God. And God holds men to that accountability in the home and the church. I have come to tremble for the responsibility placed on my husband and on my pastor and on the elders of my church. These men have big, eternal responsibilities. And what has God charged me to do? Help them not to try to take their place, not to obstruct them, not to second-guess every decision. We get to pray, encourage, affirm all that we can, work hard alongside, point to Jesus, and yes, point out real sin when we see it. We are to radiate our joy in the Lord and the fruit of the Spirit so much that it spills out over our husband, children, church, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and others, elevating the spiritual tone everywhere we are placed. This is a glorious calling, and frankly, it has very little in common with feminism. I look back and I see how feminism influenced and distorted my thinking in so many areas. Part of me wishes God had planted me in a faithful, Bible-believing church from the beginning. But I've also come to believe that the twisted path he has brought me along helps me to see now 
better than many who've been raised in good Bible-teaching churches, just how dangerous false gospels like feminism are. And what a glorious calling we have in Christ. The church is vulnerable to false gospels. The church is placed in society like the frog in the pot. It is hard to notice the water is being heated to a dangerous, even life-threatening level. If you follow the worldwide church news at all, you will know that the Methodist Church, which I will own as the church in which Rick and I first came to Christ, is finally going to do what we thought it was going to do 30 years ago, split. And I believe we will see the most liberal side continue to die, as it has for many years. I believe that the deep division of the United Methodist Church is in part because the church has ignored for decades God's plan for leadership in the church and the clear teaching, teaching of the Bible in many things, including sexuality. The issue that is breaking the camel's back today is gay marriage and gay clergy. But at the heart of gay marriage and gay clergy is the breakdown of God's plan for marriage and the family. And at the heart of the breakdown of God's plan for marriage and the family, family is feminism. And at the heart of feminism is an insistence that I, as a woman, do what I think is right for me. Even in the church, it's becoming more and more about what's right for me. Let me just ask, what if Christ had thought that way? Think of the gifts and abilities Christ set aside or restrained from employing while he was on his mission to save the world. Philippians 2, 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Jesus humbles himself to be a servant, a lowly helper. A servant in a household is far lower than a wife and a mother, yet Christ gladly became one. Jesus was obedient in all things, even to death on a cross, because he knew that as hard as God's plan was on him, the result was going to be glorious, not just for him, but for you and me and all who are called to be children of God. Ladies, feminism may have some good motivations, but its underlying message is a lie from the pit of hell. We are causing Satan to rejoice every time we believe that we are entitled to use our gifts in any way that pleases us. Newsflash, it is not about us. We are causing Satan to rejoice every time we believe that just because God has made us in many ways as smart or as gifted as men, God intends us to take over the jobs and responsibilities he's given them to do. The truth is, when we take over a man's job in the home or, and the church, God still holds the man responsible. When Eve did this, God's punishment on Adam was far greater than Eve's consequences. Do we really want to bring our husbands or our pastors or our elders in danger of more punishment because of our self-centered desires? No, ladies, we need to study the Bible 
and to see the, the glorious roles that God is calling us to. We need to understand our call to be helpers is a glorious call. Our call to set joyful, servant-hearted tone in our home is a glorious call. Our call to raise up God-treasuring image bearers is a glorious call. Answering this call faithfully doesn't necessarily mean that we won't ever work outside the home or use our gifts in extraordinary ways that God permits to impress the world. But our first calling is to understand the priorities God has set for all women and to glory in pouring ourselves, our intellect, our imaginations, our creativity, our humility, our physical strength, our all into being the most joyfully obedient women we can be. Though its purpose has never been to glorify God, feminism has contributed to greater respect, opportunities, and fairness for women in the secular world, and I am grateful God permitted it to be used for that good. But feminism has done so much harm, more harm than good in the way it has undercut God's word and his good and glorious plan for his image bearers. Perhaps because I'm a bit of a slow learner, God has felt I would learn best if he caused me to experience the consequences of giving my mind over to the lies of feminism before he showed me his better way. Believe me, God's way looks gloriously better when seen against the dark back backdrop of worldly sin. And throughout the journey, God has been so gracious to reveal himself at every deadly turn. He has shown me over and over his love in sending his precious son to die for my sinful rebellion. He has loved me enough to humble me and teach me, all the while holding me on his lap like a beloved child. He's never forsaken me, even when I was flailing around in confusion and rebellion. Feminism will never love you like that. Feminism teaches you to love yourself and trust yourself. And if you think deeply at all, you will know that that will never satisfy. You and I were created to love and glorify God. And only when we pour our hearts and souls into that will we feel the joy we were made for. I am so deeply satisfied in God, and I am grateful. Thank you.